I'm going to ask you to turn to Genesis chapter 13. And just by way of refreshing, I think I'm going to go to that screen there first. Let's just remind ourselves what the Abrahamic covenant is, what the promise is that God actually made to him. And just a, a brief refresher of where we're at in this book. Um, uh, there was the, after the flood, the majority of people remained in the valley of Mesopotamia instead of separating from each other and claiming their own land. They stayed there together. And when they did that, they began to rebel against God. And so there was a judgment that occurred where he confused their language. At that particular point, everyone spoke the same language. And uh, the consequence of him confusing the languages, uh, it's a weird way of saying it, but he basically, uh, out of all of those people, they all were able to speak different languages. And so the result of that was people gravitated towards the other people that they could communicate with. And uh, it was a successful judgment because people actually moved away from each other. And they moved away in groups that could communicate. And so that was accomplished, but there are some serious consequences of that because when people cannot communicate, this is an opportunity for us to misunderstand each other, an opportunity to distrust each other. And when people are in different groups, there are boundaries. And sometimes there's arguments over boundaries. And another factor that happened is when these people were divided, when this one group of people were divided up, uh, technology left. Uh, all of forms of education was divided. Um, uh, general knowledge that was shared by everyone was divided. And so uh, different groups left with different things. And uh, another factor is that, you know, these people continued to intermarry with each other. And so uh, in a sense, there was an isolation of, gene of genes. And so people began to have dominant characteristics. Each group was unique in that respect. And so um, when you compile all of that and you consider that in light of the fact that uh, we are sinners, uh, this was a, a tragedy on the human race because people not only couldn't communicate, they didn't trust each other. There became conflicts over shared interests or at least them liking the same things. And of course, this leads to people looking together, looking differently as well. So there was racism and war. And so all of these things as a consequence of this judgment, it was a, it was a really big deal. You know, the fact that, that man fell from his initial state of sinlessness to, to sinfulness and the curse that fell upon man and all of creation because of that was devastating. And so here we come to Genesis chapter 11 and we see this even, uh, this is amped up again. You know, after the flood, people stopped living as long. And now there was the confusion of the languages and the judgment and the consequences of that judgment. So this creates the world that you and I all know now. Everything from that point forward is what we know. And um, we can't make light of that. So it is at, the, at that point when we are introduced to this man named Abram. And Abram is important because God had chosen in the past, long before he even began uh, creating anything that this was all going to happen and that he was going to restore all things. And so the method that he chose to do that was through Abram, uh, his descendants 
was going to come his solution to our problem, our sin problem. Of course, that was that's ultimately Jesus as a descendant of Abraham. And so we were first introduced to Abram, and uh, this is the promise that he made to him from the very beginning. And we talked a little bit about this because when you, when you come to chapter 12, it's just like Abraham and his family all followed their dad from Mesopotamia to the northern part of the Fertile Crescent. It makes it look like it was Abraham's dad who was leading that. But other passages, there's several in the Bible that tells us that it was God who appeared to Abraham before his name was Abraham. It was Abram. God appeared to Abram in Mesopotamia and made this promise to him. And so uh, that is why they traveled around that desert. And we talked about how that land is fertile and uh, you, livestock and, and there's water, you know, so instead of just cutting straight across that desert with all of those animals and little children, they would go around it. And so they got to the top of the horseshoe and stayed there because Abraham's dad was uh, not able to go on more than likely and he ended up passing away. And so when he passed away in Haran, God appeared to Abraham a second time and said, I want you to continue on, continue to the land of Canaan. And so Abraham and Lot, both together with their families, continued south uh, until they came to the land of Canaan, which we all know now as the land of Israel. Now, when they got there, they stayed there for a little bit, but eventually there was a famine, and the Bible tells us that the famine was severe. And so to escape that, they went further south across the Sinai Peninsula into that Nile Delta that's very fertile there in Egypt. And they, they came into the land of Egypt. And uh, we know that some things happened in Egypt. For one, Abraham, Abram uh, asked Sarah to pretend like she was his sister. And of course, this caused all kinds of problems. And so... The Hebrews were forced out of Egypt. They were asked to leave. They were commanded to leave. And so we talked about how God's desire, the purpose of the Abrahamic covenant is for God to uh, reveal himself and his truths, his love, his reasons, his knowledge, the way he sees things, that those that information was supposed to be shared through the rest of the world through them. They were the conduit. And uh, here in this situation, they're in Egypt and they're leaving on bad terms. They have offended Egypt. And so it's really important how we leave things. How you leave a job, how you leave a friendship, a relationship, all things that we do, it's important how we leave. And so uh, Abram and Lot are leaving Egypt. Now, in the Bible, it doesn't tell us that Lot went with Abram into Egypt. But we know he did because when we get to chapter 13, which is where we're at this morning, Lot is with Abram leaving Egypt. And so they leave Egypt, but they're leaving together, but they're very wealthy now. And in those days, you know, people were wealthy, but based on their silver and gold, just like in jewels, just like they are today. But livestock and those kind of things was also part of your wealth. And so they were very wealthy. They had acquired great wealth. And so they are making this trek across that Sinai Peninsula back to Canaan. And we're going to find out very quickly that um, just like the famine was a test, their wealth is a test. You know, people always want to win the lottery. Well, 
sometimes that's the worst thing that could ever happen to you. Um, I know that in Fiddler on the Roof, you know, he would say, Lord, it would be such a bad thing if I could just have such a, just a small fortune. And, uh, but sometimes these are, these are problematic. And so this caused great growing pains um, between Abram and Lot because of their wealth. And uh, our church, you know, think about our church. If our church was ever to grow in size, if we were to become larger, there would be friction. There would be power struggles and growing pains. And so each one of us needs to ask ourselves, are you available for that? You might be thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm willing for that as long as this stays the same, this stays the same, I get to keep doing this, and not, you know. All of a sudden you start putting all these qualifiers on the, on the word available. And uh, growing pains. I wonder what would happen if we were not available. So let's keep that in mind as we come to chapter 13. We're going to read it together. Genesis chapter 13. Then Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev. He, his wife, and all he had, and Lot with him. Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. He went by stages from the Negev to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had formerly been, to the site where he had built the altar. And he worshipped the Lord there. Now Lot, who was traveling with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land was unable to support them as long as they stayed together, for they had so many possessions that they could not stay together. And there was quarreling between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land. Then Abraham said to Lot, please, Let's not have quarreling between you and me, or between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, since we are relatives. Isn't the whole land before you? Separate from me. If you go to the left, I will go to the right. If you go to the right, I will go to the left. Lot looked out, and he saw that the entire Jordan Valley, as far as Zor, was well watered everywhere, like the Lord's garden and the land of Egypt. Of course, this was before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose the entire Jordan Valley for himself. And then Lot journeyed eastward, and they separated from each other. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, but Lot lived in the cities of the valley and set up his tent near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning greatly against the Lord. After Lot had separated from him, the Lord said to Abram, Look from the place where you are. Look north and south, east and west. For I will give you and your offspring forever all the land that you see. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if one could count the dust of the earth, then your offspring could be counted. Get up and walk from one end of the land to the other, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent, and he went to live beside the oaks of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. This chapter begins with Abram, uh, says Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev. And the Negev looks very much different today. Today it is a barren wasteland. If you can imagine Lot and Abram 
doing a survey of the land, looking at everything and looking at the Dead Sea and the surrounding desert and desolation that's around there today, it's hard to believe Lot would choose that, isn't it? That's because it didn't look like that. It was lush. It was well irrigated. It was a desired area. There were city-states living in that region. It looks very different. This is important for us to remember. Um, in verse, uh, of course, this is all going to change. Uh, as a matter of fact, in this passage, it's compared to the Garden of Eden. That's how wonderful this place was. This is the, the spot that Lot chose. And it looks so much different today. And of course, uh, this all is going to come to a crashing end in Genesis chapter 19, because there in verse 10, as it says, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So that judgment was devastating. It was permanently devastating to that entire area. And so an uh, evolutionist would look at that and see millions and millions of years that led to this condition but biblically, we know it's because of Genesis chapter 19, when God lowered the boom on that area, Sodom and Gomorrah. And we can see in our passage here already that things are going south in Sodom. It's not a good place, it's a bad place. And people are very evil there and sinning in front of the Lord. In chapter 15, we're going to find out that there's some people that their, their, their sin has not reached the point where God's going to do something. Here in this chapter, we can see that there's some people who are sinning, but it hasn't reached the point to where God's going to step in and do something. Kind of interesting. Well, Abram and Lot, as we talked about, were very wealthy. And the Bible says here that the land was unable to support them as long as they stayed together in verse 6. So it wasn't wrong in and of itself for them to separate. That wasn't wrong. And Abram valued their relationship. And so he says, let's, let's not quarrel between you and me. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Let's just not fight about these things. We can share it. And so Lot looked out and he saw that the entire Jordan Valley, as far as Zor, was well watered everywhere, like the Lord's garden in the land of Egypt. And Lot lived in the cities of the valley, and he set up his tent near Sodom. And again, now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning, against, sinning greatly against the Lord. So as these events unfold, we have two men who make two very different choices and approaches to life. Lot chooses to live by sight. Abraham chose to live by faith. 2 Corinthians 5.7 tells us, for we are to walk by faith, not by sight. In Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. You know, when someone, when a loved one passes away, there can be bitter strife among siblings over the possessions, the money. Relationships run for life over a chair or a bowl. But Abraham here was big picture. Because he knew that the entire land had been promised to his descendants, all of it. And so he was camping on that promise. All the land belonged to his descendants. You see, Abram was confident in God's promise. Uh, at the men's retreat, we talked briefly about having assurance of your salvation. And some people don't have assurance because they're basing their assurance on themselves, how they're 
conducting themselves, whether they're sinning or they're not sinning, or they're not sinning too much, um, or if they sinned and they ran back to God in time, and but by that guy, he's sinning, and he ended up coming back to God. And so all of this pressure is upon yourself. Uh, and then you, you may find yourself chasing things to make you feel like you're still saved, feel like you're still within God's graces. And all of that is a mistake because your salvation is grounded upon God's promise. It's what he's told you he's going to do. That's where our assurance comes from, is resting in the promises of God. And so this is Abram here. He's living by faith, and he's resting in God's promise. Now, we see Abram leaving Egypt with intention. He is moving away, and he's moving in stages from the Negev all the way back to Bethel, where there's something very important, an altar. So Abram, in his mind, is returning to Bethel. He's returning to that place between Bethel and Ai where he had erected an altar. That's where he's going. You see... And on the men's retreat, we talked about how Jesus is coming back at any moment to be prepared. And we're supposed to live our light in light of that so that when he does return, we're to be found faithful and working. You know, that's what we want. We don't want him to come back and to not be faithful, to not be working. And here, Abram has got... Uh, a, a vision, a goal in his mind. You know, his, his heart has already been given to God. He's resting in God's promises. And even though he doesn't just make a straight line there because of all of the people and the livestock and all of his responsibilities, he has intention as he's moving, returning back to this altar between Bethel and Ai. It says there in verse 4 that that's where he got to and that's where he called on the name of Yahweh. And it was after that, it was after he had rested in the promises of God. It was after Lot had went his way and Abram went his way and returned to the altar. It was after that that God came to him. It was after he was separated and God showed him the land and he said, in verse 17, he says, for I will give it to you, all of it. And so this chapter ends with Lot in Sodom and Abram building an altar to the Lord in Hebron because he, he moves from Bethel. He continues. Finally, in the very end of chapter 13, he, he has moved to a stand of oaks that are at Hebron. And Hebron is about 22 miles south of Jerusalem. So this is how the chapter ends with Lot and Sodom and Abram at Hebron where he's built an altar to the Lord. Now, as we come to chapter 14, some time has passed. Let's read uh, just the first few verses of chapter 14. And uh, this is going to be fun because of all of these names. And uh, out of all of them, the worst one is kind of a main character. But uh, it's this, uh, in those days, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariot, king of Elasser, Elasser. And here's the, here's the whopper. I don't know if that's Keder or Cheddar. It could be Kedorlamor. Can we just call him Cheddar? Can we just call him Cheddar today? Because we're going to read his name several. Cheddar is the king of Elam. And Tidal or Tidal, king of Goam, waged war against Bera, 
So here we got the name of a king in Sodom. Bera, king of Sodom. Bersha, king of Gomorrah. Shinab, king of Adma. And Shemember, king of Zeboam. As well as the king of Bela, which is Zor. All of these came as allies to the valley of Siddim, which is, of course, the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea. They were subject to Cheddar for 12 years. But in the 13th year, they rebelled. Now, uh, a nation is a large area of land, and it has many cities in it, a nation. Just think about what a nation is. Um, has many cities. And there's a central governor, a central government. And there's usually somebody at the top of that government, like a king. Well, at this stage of the game, at this point in the Bible, land was controlled by city-states. These were cities that were that were large, and they were fortified, and they would have a king. And so if Cincinnati was a city-state, um, there would be a wall around the center part of it. So Fountain Square would be protected with a great wall. Um, how far out, I don't know. It wouldn't be the entire city limits of Cincinnati, but that would be the city-state proper. It would have a king. And all of the people that lived on the outskirts of the city would be places like Delhi and Green Township and Anderson Township, uh, Forest Park and Springdale. Probably Northern Kentucky would fall into this too. And all of these people would be afforded a certain level of protection, but they would also be paying tribute. And as these city-states would would begin to spread out. They were, their tentacles would go as far as they possibly could until they began to touch the tentacles of another city-state. And sometimes they could live beside each other, but sometimes they couldn't. Uh, what we see here in our Bible in the first five verses is that there are five Canaanite city-states that are paying tribute to a powerful king in Mesopotamia. This ch Cheddar or Kedalarmer. Kedarlaimer, that guy, he's a, he's a Mesopotamia. If you look at this, uh, uh, Elam is, uh, is just east of Babylon. And of course, we've studied Shinar already. We know that that's the general area of Babylonia. So these are kings that are way over there in the Ur of Chaldees, in the area where Abram first left. These kings over there, way over across the desert, uh, are collecting tribute from kings, these city-states in southern Israel. How does that work? If I don't pay my electric bill, they can just come out to my house and turn it off, you know. But if I'm in Egypt, or if I'm over here just a little bit north of Egypt and they're way over across the desert, why, why would they be paying tribute? Well, uh, the reason is because um, of the location of where Israel is. Let's continue reading and we'll answer that question beginning of verse 5. In the 14th year of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, uh, so let, let's just review. I, I might have messed it up by running my mouth here, but um, you've got five kings. You've got this king in Mesopotamia and these four city-states in southern Israel are paying tribute to him. 
And then they've decided that they're not going to pay tribute anymore. They paid it for 12 years, but in the 13th year they said, we're not doing it anymore. And that's what caused a problem. So that king in Mesopotamia found four other kings, or found th four, uh, he found uh, four, three other kings. So there was four kings from Mesopotamia, and they came to deal with these city-states in southern Israel. These five kings, these five city-states in southern Israel had banded together in their rebellion. And so you've got four Mesopotamian kings coming over to set things straight with these city-states south of Israel. It's in part of Israel, and part of it isn't, but it's, it's in this Negev area around the Dead Sea. Verse 5. In the fourteenth year of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him they came and defeated the Raphim, the Raphaim, and that's the, that's the giants. Those are descendants of the Nephilim. Uh, in Ashtaroth Kurnaim, and the Zumanin Ham, uh, these other people, and the Horites in the mountains of Seir, as far as uh, there, El Piran by the wilderness. And then they came back to invade uh, Kadesh, and they defeated all the territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who lived in in that area there. And so it's describing that as these kings are moving from Mesopotamia back down into this area to set things straight, they're whooping everybody. All of these people are falling at their sword. These are tough guys. Then in verse 8, the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, the king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela went out and they lined up for battle in the valley of Siddim against this king from Elam against the king from, of Goam, against the king of Shinar, and against the king of Elasar. So it's four kings against five. Verse 10. Now the valley of Siddim contained many asphalt pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, but the rest fled to the mountains. The four kings from Mesopotamia, they took all, the, all of the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food and went on. And they also took Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, for he was living in Sodom, and they went on. Now, one of the survivors uh, came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was at the oaks belonging to Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol, and the brother of Anna. He's there in Hebrew. And they were bound by a treaty with Abram, these people that he was living with. So when Abram heard that his relative had been taken prisoner, he assembled his 318 trained men born in his household, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he and his servants deployed against them by night, attacked them, and pursued them as far as Hobah to the north of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and all his relative and his relative lot and his goods, as well as all the women and the people. So Lot chose this land. There's, there's one... One bad thing about good land is that everybody else wants it. The situation is, is that Canaan is an intersection. It's a crossroads of the trade routes. As uh, people in Egypt trading to the north, people in Mesopotamia moving trading all the way around the Fertile Crescent. And so it was very important to control this region. This is why there was a Mesopotamian presence as far as Israel. This is the Fertile Crescent. And we see here that when Abraham was, was advised that what had happened with Lot, 
not only do we, not see, do we see that Abram did not get involved in this conflict at all, uh, he, went to go, he went to go get Lot. And he rounds up 318 men, 318 trained men. And so this kind of gives us an, a, an idea of the size of, uh, of this group of people that are the Hebrews at this point. There's Lot's family, there's Abram's family, and it's, it's gotten big. And uh, let me see if I can find the, where I was reading that. But, um, um, in verse 14, it says, These were trained men born in his household. And if you go back to the Abraham, Abrahamic covenant, it's talking about how his descendants are going to be like the dust of the earth. And here's talking about, you know, people from, that were born in his household, but how were they born in his household? Are they Abraham's kids? No, Sarah's barren. He didn't have any children. So God's made this incredible promise to him and the numbers are growing. The, the, the clan is increasing. It's getting very big. He's, he has 318 trained army. But none of them are from him. And so as a human being, as we will see as this progresses, that there's the, there's the, the inclination that we have to try to help God, to try to figure out what God's doing. You know He's told you something, but it's not quite happening the way you think, and so you begin to strategize, and you know, maybe, maybe God just means that the people I'm in charge of, those are the, that's the vast descendants. That's the dust of the earth. And so he begins to reevaluate and reevaluate God's careful words, the language that God's given to him, the promises that God's given to him. He begins to consider those and weigh them. All of a sudden, am I available? So available starts changing its meaning, you know, and we'll see this happen with Abram and his wife, Sarah. But what happens at this point is very miraculous for Abram to win this victory. It reminds us of what we studied in the book of Judges with Gideon's army and how he had a pretty good-sized army, but God narrowed it down to nothing, just about 300 guys there in that incredible battle in the Valley of Jezreel that we studied when we were going through that book. And that's because only God can receive the credit. And Abraham pursued him all the way to Dan, and that's about 140 miles to the northern tip of Israel, and then to what is it called, Hobah, which is, we're, now we're moving into Syria, so we're 100 miles north of that. And so this was a, a, they had these guys on the run for nearly 240 miles, and ran them down and got their stuff back. And so this was a miraculous victory. This, these four Mesopotamian kings were fierce, they were a great military battle or, uh, army that knew was well trained in battle, had successfully controlled the entire Fertile Crescent. And as they came down, they, they wiped out all of these people that we were reading there, wiped out these five kings. But Abraham has, has had victory over them. And this brings us to the most important part of all of this, beginning in verse 17. After Abram returned from defeating this king and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley. And then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God most high. He blessed Abram and he said, Abraham is blessed by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and give praise to God most high who has handed over your enemies to you. 
And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Then the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people, but take the possessions for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand in an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that belongs to you, so that you can never say, I made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the servants have eaten. But as for the share of the men who came with me, these men that lived near Hebron that had sided with him in this treaty, Anner, Eskol, and Mamre, they can take their share, but not me. Verse 16, Abram brought back all of the goods and also his relative Lot and all his goods, as well as the women and the other people. And as he's returning, this is when the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva. So we saw there in verse 2 that the king's name's Bera. And this valley is in the surrounding area of Jerusalem. It's possibly the Kidron Valley, but we don't know that for sure. And so as the, as the king of Sodom is coming there to, to meet Abram, so is Melchizedek. They're both coming to meet him. This is when Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed Abram. And of course, Salem, we know from Psalm 76.2, is short for Jerusalem. So he's the king of a city-state called Jerusalem. So he's not only the king, he's a priest there. He's not a priest to Canaanite gods, he's a priest to the one true God. So it's a really good lesson for us because uh, we can see that God is active in the lives of people all over the world, not just Abram. Here's a, here's a man who still worships the one true God. It's interesting in the book of Judges, during those conquests, they never go to Jerusalem. It's not until David, King David takes Jerusalem. But here's Melchizedek, and, and he's blessing Abram. You know, in a book that is just chock full of genealogy and connecting the dots on this person had this person, and this is why this person's here, because he's related to this person. This is uh, the basic format for the entire book of Genesis. But here we, without explanation, we're introduced to this man without genealogy. Here we're introduced to another believer, the king of Jerusalem, who is serving as priest to God Most High. And he's blessing Abram, and Abram tithes to him. And so this is a very clear demonstration of the superiority of Melchizedek. Melchizedek blesses Abram. Abram pays a tithe to Melchizedek superiority. It also tells us that when the Levitical priesthood comes from Abram later, it will be in subjection to Melchizedek. Melchizedek is higher than Abram. This is being demonstrated here. Melchizedek means righteous king. He is presented without genealogy. And so it is this reason that he becomes a type of Christ in the Bible. Now, some people believe that this is Jesus, but uh, from what I'm reading and everything I've, I've studied about it, I'm, I'm under the impression that he is just a type of Christ. Uh, a type is a shadow. If you're walking down the street and the sun's shining and, the, and your shadow is there on the sidewalk while you're walking, the shadow is a type of the real thing. And so Melchizedek helps us to see who Jesus is. Melchizedek, he is the, a picture of Christ. 
Um, many years later, David is, King David is going to take the throne. He's going to take the throne of Melchizedek. And he prophesies in Psalms 110, verse 4, that his descendant, the descendant from him, David, this is David's prophecy, is that my descendant, the Messiah, will be a priest forever from the order of Melchizedek. So this is a very interesting shadowy figure that we're introduced to. We don't know a lot about him. But he is designed to be a picture of Christ for us. We see him bringing what out to Abram? There in verse 18. Bread and wine. We also don't want to miss, uh, since we were talking about money in Sunday school, <laughs> uh, we don't want to miss the, the fail to recognize the precedent that's established here. He, he gives him a tenth of everything. All of the spoils and things that he has, he, he gives Melchizedek a tenth. And of course, this is long before the Mosaic Law. And so it, it demonstrates to us the importance of recognizing that everything you have is given to you by God. And it's, it's a foolishness on our part to hang on to it. You know, and uh, to gladly give him back a tenth. If he wants more, he can have more. You know, um, trusting God with your finances because He's the one that gave them to you in the first place. And so, uh, it's also a demonstration of giving your best to Him. You know, uh, you wouldn't bring your sickly animal to the temple. You would bring your best. And uh, it's, um, you know, you don't pay all of your bills and at the end of the month see what's left and uh, you decide what out of that God gets. You know, it's it's right off the top. Your first fruits. That's what you give God. And it's not that the New Testament teaches that Christians have to give a tenth because it doesn't teach that at all. But it does tell us that we're supposed to give and that we're supposed to give regularly. It says that sometimes we're supposed to give sacrificially and cheerfully. So if you can't give those things, then you shouldn't do it because it's a waste of your time. You're just, you're, your waste is a waste of energy. But here's a very important precedent where Abram is, is tithing and giving a tenth of his all he owns to God. Well, this is when the king of Sodom makes his offer. He says, well, give me the people, but you take the possessions for yourself. So this was a great offering. You know, when these five city-states were raided, the spoils were incredible. They took the people prisoner, but they took all of their stuff too. They took all their food and everything. And so now all of that was in Abram's possession. He had recovered everything from these five city-states. Abram would have been extremely wealthy, to say the least. And so this king is saying, let's do a trade. You can keep all of that. Just give me the people. Isn't that a strange thing for a king of a city-state to say? You can have all of our gold and silver and our jewels and just give me the people. Someone made the, uh, the observation that the devil does the same thing. He offers us all of the pleasures and riches of the world. Just give me the people. Well, within this offer from this king was a hook. It was a veiled offer that would place Abram underneath him. He would owe him. And Abram had decided not to do that. And just like a true hero of the faith, Abraham chose to live by God's blessings rather than by the world's. He says, I have raised my hand in an oath to Yahweh, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, 
but I will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that belongs to you so that you can never say, I made Abram rich. So let's pray.